This episode of Buddhist Geeks is sponsored by Cards for Mindfulness. Cards for Mindfulness is a beautifully designed limited edition set of 54 cards that contain innovative techniques and helpful reminders to bring us back into the here and now. Cards for Mindfulness is made by our friends at Mindfulness Everywhere, the same people behind Budify. You can visit kickstarter.com or cardsformindfulness.com to receive your set and find out more. Give yourself the perfect present with Cards for Mindfulness. Buddhist Geeks, exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What's the sound of one geek giving? Find out at BuddhistGeeks.com slash give. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. Uh, This is Vincent Horn, and I'm really delighted after uh, some time away from uh, conducting interviews to be joined today over Skype with Carolyn Rose Gimian. Uh, Carolyn, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with the geeks and to uh, chat with us about your new book, uh, which is authored by Chegyam Trungpa, but which you edited, called Mindfulness in Action. Um, great to have you here. Hey, it's great to be here, Vince. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. Um, so I've been following um, your work and your husband's work with Mindful.org and, of course, um, went to Naropa. So I've got a very deep appreciation for um, you know, Chegyam Trungpa's legacy and, and some of the institutions that he helped build. And so I was excited um, to see the release of this book, Mindfulness in Action, um, in part because it seems like a really timely um, topic and, and one which I haven't seen covered from the perspective of Chekim Trungpa and his work. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, th- thanks for doing that. Um, and I thought maybe we could start for those people who haven't heard much about Chekim Trungpa. I think most people listening to the show at some point, if they've listened to more than a few episodes have probably Uh know the name, but if you could share maybe uh, a little bit about uh, who he was, um, his background, and also um, what your relationship with uh, Trungpa was uh, and and his teachings. Okay. Um, Well, uh, Chögyam Trungpa was born in Tibet. Um, He was probably the last generation of Tibetan teachers to receive the full meal deal in Tibet, the very traditional training. And um, at the same time that he was being trained to be a teacher, um, the communist Chinese were also starting to come in to Tibet. And when he was 20 years old, having just barely completed his training, he had to leave the country when the communists really took control. And um, so then he went to India and Even before he left Tibet, he was fascinated with Westerners, what he could learn about them. And when he got to India, he uh, was there for a few years and he started studying English. And really, he wanted to come to the West from the beginning. And he was given permission by the Dalai Lama, who who could say yes and no to these things, to travel to Oxford, where he studied. And he also established his first meditation center while he was in England. And from the beginning, he wanted to call his centers meditation centers rather than Tibetan Buddhist whatevers, you know. So, um, and he had a bit of a difference of opinion with some of the other um, 
Tibetan teachers, lamas that he was working with. In any case, in 1970, you know, having pretty radically changed his life, having decided to take off his robes and uh, get married and adopt a much more Western lifestyle, he came to North America, um, both Canada and then very quickly to the United States. And he's well known, um, particularly well known, for a few of his books, one of which is Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism, which was based on talks he gave in the first few years he was in the United States. Uh, that book was published in like 1973. It was very, very popular, and it's still used a lot in, in certain kinds of like Buddhist introduction, introductory courses to Buddhist studies. Um, and then a few years later, uh, a book called Shambhala, The Sacred Path of the Warrior, was very popular, and, and these are sort of classics now. Um, my relationship with him began in 1970. Um, I'm actually originally from Boulder. I'm a native of Boulder, Colorado, which is, well, it was not, I don't know, it's not all that unusual, but there are a lot of people who've moved in yeah, a lot. in the last, right? Mo most folks in Boulder at this point are, are yeah. not from Boulder, it's true. Yeah. So I had grown up in Boulder, actually wanting to get away from Boulder just because it was my hometown. And at that time, it was a pretty sleepy little town. Um, so I had moved away and just come back uh, from having you know, graduated from college. And that was the year that um, Trumpa Rinpoche moved to Boulder. And um, so I went to one of the early talks that he gave, which is actually incorporated into Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism. And I wasn't actually looking all that much for a Buddhist teacher. I was more interested in Western psychology, but I was very taken with him. And I think in part because he wasn't like a traditional religious teacher. For me, that made it more possible um, to hear what he was saying. And But I had a little bit of a problem with the fact that he was in Boulder because that was my hometown. And what was why was he in Boulder? You know, what did that say about him? So I moved the next year. I mean, it's like, he's, you know, my hometown, you know, it must be a not a very great guru or whatever. So <laughs> the next year I moved to California and um, then I was like, oh, so he's here too. I saw, you know, uh, posters and stuff. And I started to practice meditation. And I was hesitant for a couple of years. Um, it took me a couple of years before I sort of got more fully involved. But once I committed to working with the practice and to working with him and, and the community around him, then I became, you know, quite committed. And um, I started working for Shambhala Publications uh, as an editor there. And I, I kind of discovered that editing was my thing, that I kind of had an editorial mind. Or I don't know how to put it, but it just was kind of was a good match. Um, and they were at the time were looking for people to move back to Boulder. Not for them, it was the first move. For me, it was back. So I moved back to Boulder. And around that same time, I started to do some small editing projects with Chagam Trumpa. And um, after a couple of years, he invited me to become the head of the editorial department that he had established. And Judy Leaf was the outgoing editor-in-chief uh, when I came in. And I worked with Rinpoche for about, um, I don't know, the last, I guess it was six or seven years of his life as the head of that department and worked with a number of different editors. And I've just continued on 
uh, for the last, whatever it is, almost 30 years since he died. I helped establish the Shambhala archives soon after his death because I realized that there were 3,000 talks that he had given and that we had in audio format. And there were also hundreds of videos and many other documents and photographs, other artifacts. So um, we established that in Halifax, and I've been working with that as well for a long time. Okay, that's really interesting. You know, it makes me think that we're in such an interesting time where um, teachers' whole teaching careers can be recorded digitally. And then, like you're saying, you can go through and pull pieces together and bring things into a whole, that editing mind that you talked about, that, you know, that was never possible up until recently. Yeah, exactly. And I think we've probably lost a part of our brain that used to be really good at memorizing yeah. things. I mean, because yes. with now we really rely on tape or whatever it is now, digital bits to, <laughs> to, um, you know, to keep that memory for us. But interestingly, um, Trigyam Trumpa, the, as soon as he got to the, um, to the, North America, he started asking people to record all of his talks. I don't know if they would have been done otherwise, but he thought it was, he sort of picked up right away that it was probably a pretty good thing to do. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So uh, ahead, ahead in, in several regards, you know, ahead of his time um, in, in terms of teaching and then also uh, the, the intuition about technology. Um, you know, in terms of the, the kind of core of the book, you know, mindfulness in action. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the role that mindfulness played in his teachings and his approach. Um, obviously, I'm guessing you've pulled various things from various periods of his teaching, but but is there a kind of thread or a core in terms of how he was teaching uh, mindfulness? Uh, I think the first few years he was in um, the United States was the prime time when he focused on the mindfulness teachings, actually. Although I would say that out of those 3,000 talks that I mentioned that he gave, probably in like 90% or more of those talks, he would begin or end or in the middle talk about the importance of meditation practice. And the approach to meditation that he introduced was essentially um, very a, a form of mindfulness and awareness meditation practice that came both from the Tibetan training that he had received, but also he was very heavily influenced by his relationship with Suzuki Roshi, the founder of the San Francisco Zen Center. Um, and there were many things that Trumper Rinpoche incorporated into his approach to meditation practice that come from Zen. And he also paid attention to what people were doing from other traditions, like the Vipassana tradition and things like that. Nice. And, and how would you describe the, the the basic core teaching on mindfulness? I mean, I I know we hear about mindfulness so often that in some sense it, mm-hmm. it almost seems like yeah, of course, mindfulness. But you know, what what was his kind of unique uh, take take on mindfulness? Or was it? Um, unique? Maybe it wasn't. Well, I mean, I, yeah. When you say unique, well, I mean, I could tell you certain things about the actual meditation practice, which are gone into in this book, mindfulness in action that are a little bit different than I think other people um, might use. One of them is that I think almost every tradition that I know of that works with mindfulness as a formal practice incorporates some relationship with breath and breathing. And um, the interesting thing about Trigam Trumpa's approach was that he suggested 
that the meditator emphasize or put more of their attention on the out-breath and let the in-breath sort of happen naturally without a lot of attention being paid to it. And that comes from the Tibetan tradition. I mean, there's a, there's a practice called mixing mind and space, which is basically does this. But I think also he was cognizant of the need to make a connection between meditation and everyday experience. And that by emphasizing the um, out-breath, in a sense, you are going out with your breath. So you're in contact with the space around you. So I think that it's a, an appropriate practice and it's usually not given as a beginning practice, but he emphasized this um, always. Uh, the other thing is that he was really in favor of eyes open. There are different approaches to meditation practice. And uh, there are some practices that he gave his students later on that have your eyes closed. But he was, in terms of basic mindfulness practice, he thought it should be done with the eyes open. And again, I think it's because it had to do with engagement so while he emphasized what's uh, the mindful aspect of sort of the peacefulness that can come, the um, slowing down of and the noticing of what's going on within yourself, he also incorporated kind of noticing of what's going on around you. Okay. So I think those are ways that are somewhat different than the than the kind of average mindfulness approach. <laughs> okay, gotcha. Yeah, that, so, that's really interesting. Um, and and the inaction part is really interesting too because the I mean the subtitle making friends with yourself through meditation and everyday awareness I mean there's a huge emphasis you know as I read through this not just on the formal uh, technique of meditation you know in terms of sitting mm-hmm. but also yeah. in terms of the mindset of bringing that awareness into permeating that awareness into and through life um, could you say a bit about that and and, and how uh, how he teaches that or how he approached that. Yeah, well, um, again, this was something that he he emphasized over and over again, and I think for a number of reasons. One, because he could see the level of distraction that people were experiencing in the West. Um, he could, you know, he talked a lot about distraction and speed. He also saw that it was um, potentially a difficult, going to be a difficult time for people. You know, he talked a lot about working with fear. And fearlessness, which is a little different than than sort of more, well, let's just say it's a little, it was something unique to him, I think. And meditation in action was a phrase that he used from very early on. And then um, the mindfulness in action was a phrase that actually we came up with when we were <laughs> uh, searching for the title for this book. But that concept that every part of your life has to be included in mindfulness and basic awareness was something that he emphasized from the beginning. Okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Um, you know, this is bringing up a question for me because I've, I've been uh, you know, listening to you talk about how Trungpa, you know, even from the very beginning, like 1970, was thinking in terms of meditation centers as opposed to Tibetan Buddhist centers. Um, he clearly was, you know, tuning into what people were interested in um, about Buddhism, which was the, the practical aspect, at least, you know, here in the West, most people. Um, right. And now mindfulness in some sense, which traditionally, even in that approach, was part of a larger package uh, that, that, that was meditation. And mindfulness was one aspect of that. Like, you know, in, in my training, you know, mindfulness is one, you know, one of the 
you know, uh, factors of awakening, uh, you know, in various right. parts of smaller lists or bigger lists. And so now mindfulness is kind of almost, almost the way that meditation got pulled out from the tradition. It seems like mindfulness is now being even pulled out from meditation. Uh, and I'm curious, right. you know, what, what your thoughts are on, on that process and, um, you know, how that, how that, how that works. That's a big question. Well, I I th- yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking a little bit about what is, again, kind of the, the mindfulness community or the movement or what's happening with these teachings. And, and I think that one thing is that if you practice um, meditation intensively, which a lot of people do now from this very secular or non-religious perspective, that you do make discoveries and you have experiences that begin to constitute what would be called a path, and that these are kind of like natural developments that human beings will have if they do these do this practice. So, for example, you start with a with a um, closer focus. However, you attain that in your practice and a kind of keeping track moment to moment, but. As you do more and more of that, you also begin to expand your awareness. That's a natural thing that takes place. So that with still having the focus, you can begin to experience a larger space, which we could call awareness, right? Um, I think in this book, he gives one example of when you're driving a car. When you first learn to drive, you really pay attention to what's right in front of you, and maybe you're checking your mirrors and looking behind you. But if you're on a highway, you might miss the exit sign because you don't have enough awareness. You have to have a bigger perspective at the same time. So I think that's just something that happens with practice. And also um, the, some kind of natural development of empathy or for other human beings, starting to like yourself more, or at least you know make friends with what's there, and then beginning to notice other and beginning to have some empathetic relationship to other. Well, those things are only, I think, starting to be incorporated into some of the um, mindfulness perspectives that are being practiced. Yes. I think it's kind of a natural thing that will happen. Um, so you call it mindfulness, but actually, you know, you can't, I don't think if you actually are a serious practitioner, that you can limit it to just a one-shot deal. Right. It, You know, and sometimes people think that they're making a big mistake, that something has really gone wrong because they can no longer hold that narrow focus. They can no longer kind of limit, you know, limit themselves. They begin to kind of naturally expand and awaken to a a bigger situation. So, yeah. So I think people are starting to realize this, the people who are teaching mindfulness too, that they need ways to talk about that. And that's actually was one of the inspirations for me in working on this book is that I thought that that the way that Chogyam Trumpa talked about these developments was very direct and human and experience-based. It wasn't sort of technical and it wasn't too abstract. Um, I, and I think it can be helpful to people as they progress through this journey that they're making. Yeah, that's, that's a great point because um, when, I, when I was at Naropa and, and, and had to read some of Trungpa's work at the time, I really, it really like didn't land at all, and and I realized as you're saying that about the technical parts, it wasn't technical. I was extremely interested in technical technique stuff, and so when I read his stuff, it was almost a little bit more like poetry in a way, where mm-hmm. you know it just yeah. didn't make any sense to me at the time. But now I really appreciate you know that di- that different emphasis, you know, not just on the technique and saying you know do this and do this and do this, but but really almost like a more poetic. Uh, 
painting a picture almost of of, yeah. of what the mindful life could be or what you know a life of, of wisdom that might actually uh, look like mm-hmm. so yeah thanks for bringing that up um, yes yeah, it's, it's so interesting to me you know because so much of the Buddhist uh, world right now is talking about mindfulness and, and it's one of the biggest right. topics right I mean you know yeah. um, and it, it, it is also very interesting that that mindfulness as a word or as an idea is such a it's such an alive entry point for so many people now um, into what you're describing as this sort of uh, larger path that might open up for folks. Um, and I was curious, you know, in terms of that, because the mindfulness movement, if you will, is still taking form and still coming together. And, you know, it's yeah. very much seems like an informative phase. Um, you know, John Kabat-Zinn has been a really key uh, voice in that movement and, and really... For sure important part of it. And he, he often talks about mindfulness in a very particular way, which is paying attention on purpose in the present moment, non-judgmentally to the ex- unfolding of experience moment by moment. And, and when I hear that, it's very, it, it reminds me a lot of uh, the training that I received at IMS, the Insight Meditation Society mm-hmm. at Spirit Rock, which is so much focus on the moment-to-momentness of experience um, right. and, and to noticing the judging mind. And yet, you know, you're describing ways that Shrungpa uh, taught and also approached mindfulness in a slightly different way. And that seems to add a lot of dimensionality, you know, to the larger mindfulness movement, potentially. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, um, well, I think when I think about John and his work, I mean, it's been so, I don't know, I can't... Uh, divorce it actually from some appreciation for how much kind of empathy and compassion he has for people. He's introduced so many, probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people to this basic practice. And I think he has an appreciation of where it can go. But yes, I think um, his kind of mission has been to really focus on that approach um, which you said so nicely. I wish I had that memorized. That's pretty good. I have it written down. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I could have written, then I should have written it down, but, um, and yeah, the IMS, I don't know as much about how all of that unfolds in terms of their teaching. I think what I've seen, at least like I look at their website and stuff like that and see who's teaching there. And I see that, um, with IMS that they are presenting that, uh, kind of, moment to moment approach, but at the same time they have lots of other people they invite to teach at Spirit Rock. Yes. Places like that to right. to fill it out. And there's certainly a lot of discussion about Maitri and uh loving kindness and compassion as well. Um yeah, I think Trigam Trumpa saw it as a pr- pretty big path. And I think he also was kind of very curious about how Buddhism and how the teachings on mindfulness would come into the larger um, context in North America. So, you know, he was going for both a broad and a deep approach. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the kind of deeper approach often was more with smaller groups of people over long periods of time, but he really also could see that, um, there was going to be a bigger movement. And I think he thought this could be incredibly helpful. I mean, he went at it through the Shambhala teachings for a period of time, and I think they have proven to be useful. And I think really his inspiration there was to figure out how to bring um, mindfulness and a mindful world as into the lives of more people. 
Yeah, I mean, that was, that was yeah. uh, you could say, an early attempt at secularizing meditation, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, that's really interesting because one of the things I, I thought as I was reading this was I, I was sort of imagining, you know, if Trung Po was, was here today, you know, um, uh, removing the question of, of rebirth and, uh, and tulkus and stuff, but just for a moment, uh-huh. imagining he was, you know, literally yeah. here today. Yeah, um, yeah. What, I, I was curious if you have any thoughts on, on how, uh, how you imagine he might respond to, to seeing what's developed in the last five or ten years with the mindfulness movement and the way right. that it's, it is really penetrating so many areas and aspects of uh, our modern society and modern world, yeah. um, from education to technology to everything in between. Um, how do you imagine he might have responded to that? Because it seems to me there could be, you know, he could sort of see it as, a, as the fruition in some ways of what mm-hmm. you're describing. And, and, and I also could sort of imagine him or, or critics of the mindfulness movement saying, you know, he would have talked a lot about, you know, spiritual materialism and how this is, a, you know, maybe mm-hmm. an example of that. And maybe it's both. I don't know. It right. seems like it could be both. Right. Well, you know, I'm always hesitant to sort of pronounce what he would think because yeah, <laughs> I hear a lot of people and in my, the kind of work that I do collecting also people's opinions for the archives and stuff like that. People come down on, on a lot of different sides about what he would think about things. That's, that's why <laughs> but, I use the term imagine. Yeah. I want to hear what so you I could imagine. imagine. I mean, my own feeling is that, um, he would have been, uh, it, it, that he would have been delighted with the amount of energy and interest that there is in the practice of meditation. I just cannot imagine that he wouldn't have been delighted by that and by the opportunity to to present meditation to so many more people in ways that would be useful in their lives. And I often think of the time when he did arrive in North America and it was this teeming counterculture, whatever it was, universe of the early 70s And he would go to these large gatherings and give talks to anybody, pretty much. I mean, um, he did a little bit of work with Est, with Werner Earhart. And I remember going to things in California where before he would talk, there would be Hare Krishna's chanting and this person doing this thing and dancing and, you know, it was everything. Well, and then, you know, if you think about the early days at Naropa, there were people from, with so many differing um, approaches to spirituality. So I just went this year to Wisdom 2.0 for the first time, Mm -hmm. which is now like, I think it was 1,500 people or 2,500 people. It was big. Um, And it reminded me of one of these happenings in the early 70s (laughs) in a way, you know, they had a place where you could buy different teas and mindful jewelry and there were some Tibetan monks doing a sand mandala and then in the main hall there were all these people including John Kabat-Zinn and many others, Jack Cornfield, various people presenting um, their work uh, in the area of mindfulness. So something about all that energy, something about all of that interest, I think some of it is pure what he, what probably Trumpa Rimche would have termed spiritual materialism pure confusion. Um, but an awful lot of it is, is sort of seeking, uh, searching for the genuine article and also just taking, it just seems that there are places like the classroom, um, work that people are doing within the military, within business, so many areas where it would just be great to shine this kind of a light. 
and give people some relief. Mm. Um, maybe, maybe like a, a kind of a last question um, mm-hmm. because I've asked a lot about Trungpa, um, but I, I want to ask you, you know, more directly. Um, what's your feeling for the future of the mindfulness uh, movement and and where it might be heading? What's what are your hopes or aspirations for that movement? Where, uh, given that you're so uh, in close proximity to it, and also that you really have done this uh, very deep training um, with Trungpa and others, uh, any any thoughts there? I uh, well, just that I would like to see it deepen, um, and and not to take away from what's going on now, because I've learned a lot from people who are um, using meditation in their work and mindfulness. Um, I've you know have a lot of respect for for what people are doing and seeing what needs to happen in order for it to be relevant and applicable in different parts of, you know, different areas of life. But I do think that um, it will only really take hold if it takes into account the full spectrum of human experience in the long run. And that if it's just a little technique that that could be kind of, um, you know, could be popular for a while and then not really, all that helpful when people discover the limitations, which, you know, you inevitably do, whether it's with a diet or, or some help, self-help technique. But if you use a technique to unlock the richness of your life, and if, it, if the, what you're doing can go along with that, then I think it could go a long ways. And I'd like to see more of that happen. And I don't um, think that it has to I think the other thing that's interesting is that it can go, it can become something that is not dependent uh, on on a particular tradition, like the Buddhist tradition. Although respect for traditions and knowledge and wisdom that exists, I think is really important. But um, I think it is not going to work if if people think it's just sort of um, what do you call it? Not pseudo Buddhism, but sort of Buddhism in disguise or something like that. I think it has to also have its own own space and that's part of you know what needs to happen its own unique path its own unique path and then it sounds like yeah. a deep a deepening into that in some way yeah for sure and taking into account things like uh, what's happening in neuroscience but not either being a slave to that you know i don't think it can be a slave to one or another thing <laughs> that it needs to really relate to human beings and and how they experience their world that is the one of the interesting things about mindfulness is it exists at the intersection of so many so many spaces. Yeah, that's cool. And, and what I know about your work and the work that you know the people who are interested in what you're doing and who support it, um, you're right there. You know, I do think also that mindfulness, while it has been nurtured and supported by people from my generation, that its future lies with with younger people. <laughs> obviously, because we're not going to be around that much longer. So it's great that people are taking this up and, and uh, yeah, yeah. And working with this material. Yeah. So, yeah, so cool. I mean, it's, uh, it's, so, it's so clear to me, it, you know, at least from where I sit, that, um, that, that that is happening, that will happen. And, and it's, you know, it's, uh, it's going to look uh, different in so many ways, but then there's this timeless thread that, uh, you know, there's, there's this thread that, that seems to connect these things in a way that's really, uh, really beautiful and, and quite surprising. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. So I'm happy to play a little teeny role and really happy to see what other people are up to. Yeah, same here.
After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.